police had searched the house of Kelly and Jason Cochran, but scared by law enforcement attention, the two primary suspects in Chris Regan's disappearance fled town. Soon, another seasoned detective joins the case, and the investigation into what really happened to Chris would cross state lines. This week's episode is The Murder of Chris Reagan, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, this is the conclusion of this two-part series, and there's uh, so much information on this case. We had to pick and choose because there's just it was it spanned states, agencies, federal and state. It's weird that it was, did involve so many people, and not more people know about it. But I think that could be said for a lot of true crime cases. I mean, the ones we hear about are a very small percentage of what's going on daily. Oh, right. Exactly. Well, and this one, too, is like it has been the subject of, you know, the 2020 and the dead north. But when you really break down a lot of what happened, we'll see involves at the early onset catching things sooner and not um, what we see. You know, the Michigan State Police maybe were a little hasty in their judgments and kind of left a small police department to solve things on their own. So we'll see that moving across to Indiana actually ends up being helpful. If you need extra hands, get them wherever, even if it's in another state. Sometimes you're looking for some job assistance and you find love in the most unexpected of places. I love this, uh, that ending for them. Uh, So we'll get to that. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Chief Laura Frizzo of the Iron River Police Department had executed a warrant at the home of her main suspects, Jason and Kelly Cochran. The next morning, the Cochrans fled from Michigan to their hometown of Hobart, Indiana, six hours south of the town where Kelly's lover, Chris Reagan, had gone missing. Although blood traces had been found in the Cochrans' home on 12 ceiling tiles, a living and dining room carpet, and some door hardware, it was too degraded by paint and chemicals to pull DNA. Michigan State Police had found multiple weapons, including long guns and revolvers. Subsequent searches uncovered Jason's autobiographical fantasy novel in the basement, containing violent descriptions and disturbing thoughts. Yeah, the ceiling tile blood spatter was painted over, bleached over, and then the carpet stains was kind of hidden by a couch, bleached over, and Kelly tried to say, well, our dog is in heat, but Laura Frizzo had noted earlier when she met them, Kelly said, well, this dog is 14, so I don't think Uh, your dog's in heat on the ceiling. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, on the ceiling is, I've never seen a dog go that crazy in heat, but even on the, the floor, yeah, at 14... What's interesting is the basement where I think the majority of the dismembering took place was spotless. Like Mm -hmm. they really took their time down there, but the, the actual act of the murder, I mean, 
if you don't want someone to know that they're about to be shot, you can't really prepare the room in a way that you would that would like prevent any kind of blood splatter. So even if they second half of their plan, they were very careful and judicious. That didn't mean that they didn't leave some things unturned on the first the first part of it. And especially in a house with a basement, on the very first search, the Michigan State Police were like, we don't need to go in the basement. Oh, you and always Laura go Frizz- in the basement. That's where everything <laughs> happens. You should start in the basement. That's what Chief Rizzo was like, wait, what? You didn't search the basement? They're like, no, we didn't search it. And it's like, that's a vital thing. So you have to like go back. And then down in the basement is where they found this fantasy novel that Jason wrote. That's why you search the basement. Mm -hmm. Will there be evidence of a crime? Certainly. But there could also be something, you know, it's kind of secretive. You don't want it. You're not going to keep it on your nightstand. You might hide it away. Go find what's hidden down there. It's also weird that he didn't take that. He must have forgotten that he... um he must have forgotten he Michael scarned everybody and decided to write his his novel down in the basement and then just left it before you flee town with very incriminating evidence in it, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're grabbing all your shit to flee in the middle of the night because you're afraid the cops are on your trail, take all of your handwritten admissions yes. with you. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Anything, really. Everything. In late October 2014. Jason had outlined his novel in 17 pages of a spiral-bound notebook. He wrote, Where monsters hide. On the first page, beneath the word, Why. He noted how, Monsters have predators. And explained how evil had both a scent and a look, writing, Only true evil recognizes evil. The main character was named, Jason Quack Quack. Kelly later told author M. William Phelps that the novel was about Jason and that he took most of his inspiration from the television series Dexter. Quack Quack was a nickname given to Jason by his nieces and nephews, though Kelly wasn't sure why. She also mentioned that he had a weird relationship with kids. He said, she said, yeah, she goes, well, I never got the sense that it was creepy. She said he was just always very awkward and weird about it. But then in the autobiographical novel, he makes a comment that Jason Quack Quack had been in jail for crimes against children and had gotten out. So it was an interesting choice, if it is an autobiographical fantasy novel, to make the main character, which is you, a convicted child predator. Yeah, that's, oof, yeah, that's a, a definitely weird choice. a choice. Yeah, and the only true evil recognizes evil could be... Um, an ode to his his lover because they I both think so. seem like they're evil sacks of shit that were were they that like that before they got married? I think that you can't be a completely stable individual and then within just a few years this is where you're at. Like two people, maybe one person that's being severely abused, but I think they had some of this evil in him long before they ever got married. Yeah, only true evil recognizes evil, mm-hmm. especially if it lives next door to you and you fall in love. Mm-hmm. The quack quack in the book had a sign above his door that read, If you're not invited, you're not welcome. Enter at your own risk. Throughout the outline, he listed off various victims, like a priest and a politician, described his understanding of the prey-slash-predator dynamic, wrote that some animals can smell fear, and stated that even predators have predators of their own. The book concluded with, Monsters know the smell of other monsters. Then read, Wife saves the day. 
And that's kind of the setup. He like lists off these people that I guess he would want to kill, including like door to door, like evangelists, kind of like knocking on the door, priests, politicians, and that he was going to be the one to kill him, kind of like Dexter, which like also a vigilante style. Yes. And they found a great amount of plastic sheeting in the house as well. And they think that's kind of what they did in the basement. So this weird Dexter mm. connection obsession is definitely part of it. And he's telling on himself in this book. For sure. I watched, I think, no, I don't think I saw the last season of Dexter. Mm -hmm. It took a turn at some point, and I've heard the finale is a literal, like, jumping of the shark. But season four (laughs) of Dexter, still one of the best seasons of a drama I've seen. I also would like to say that someone in our house now has a sign on their door that says, enter at your own risk, and it's my five-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Who has now put a sign on her door. She has, it has a little string so she can hang it from her doorknob and Tommy helped her make it. And (laughs) on one side it says, do not enter. And there's a rainbow. So it's like threatening, but also friendly. (laughs) And then you turn it over and it says, enter at your own risk. So depending (laughs) on how she's feeling is, and usually I'll walk down the hall and it says, do not enter. And I'm like, all right, well, I uh, guess I'll come back. I thought I had several more years before I was going to be in this territory, but here we are. Right? I was going to say, you said she's five and a half, not 15 and a half. But, oh, but you man. would never know it, though. She, oof, that child. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> I love it. She knows, she knows what she wants. And it's sometimes it's enter with your own risk, and sometimes it's go away. Yeah, yeah. Most of the time, it's a, it depends. She's, you know, like, she goes, sometimes I just want to be by myself. And I was like, I fucking understand that. Here, here. Heard. Here. <laughs> Heard. Whenever you need alone time, let us know. Right. Acceptable. Wife saves the day is also very telling. It, you know, oh, like, yes. in what way is she saving the day? Because she, as we'll learn, like, this pact they have allows him to live out his fantasies or. Yeah. I don't know. That's what threw me off, especially if the idea is that Quack Quack's some sort of a Dexter figure. Dexter killed bad guys, like killers mm-hmm. and monsters. Well, in this case, if he's hinting that he had something to do with killing Chris Reagan, it's not that, like everybody said, Chris Reagan's a nice guy. He's yeah, dad. He's friendly. You know, it wasn't except for he's having sex with Jason yeah. Quack Quack's wife. So in that case, I guess he thinks he's a, quote, monster. But it's like, well, the wife was into it, said you were cool with it. You know, it's like you can't trick some into some sort of an adultery situation by telling them everything's consensual and then going well but you're a monster because you're having sex with another man's wife it was like well that wasn't really the rules of the game whenever we started this more like jason cuck cuck you ask me that's that's a more appropriate nickname the quack quack's also very cringy but i hate it especially uh, because if kids made it up and knowing what you just said about all that it's also just a really stupid name for a character in a yeah. story that's so dark and twisted like this one. Yeah, it's a weird uh, – it also – a lot of the pages, like, he would just start a sentence and scratch it out. So it is presumed, given the great quantity of drugs that he consumed, too, that a lot of it was – you know, he gets super high and write half a thing and scratch it out. That's why it's only an outline and it's only 17 pages. Though Kelly made sure to mention he finished it. He was He's a genius. Jason was such a genius. Him being an idiot was all a ruse, and he was a genius novelist and author. And Michael – or William Phelps was like – Mm, I don't know about all that. <laughs> 17 Maybe. pages. 
makes not a novelist. No, I can tell you as a person with a lot of embarrassing scribblings in a spiral notebook, it does not make you a novelist. No, you got to put it all together and have Mm -hmm. a couple hundred pages probably. Exactly. But I don't think we need any more than 17. We didn't need more than one. So I'm glad that he stopped. Yeah, the quack quack saga is plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Frizzo obtained a search warrant for the Cochran's DNA and headed to Indiana to execute with the help of local law enforcement. When Jason saw Frizzo at the Hobart police station, he froze up and began to shake before asking for a lawyer. Kelly was brought in as well. Her DNA was taken, but she left after refusing to answer questions and demanding a lawyer. Later, a defiant Kelly spoke on the phone with her neighbor in Michigan, David Saylor. According to Where Monsters Hide, she told him, They haven't found the body yet or we'd have been arrested. At the end of that same call, Kelly said, They're never going to find the body. And when we reference Where Monsters Hide, it is not the one written. 17 page. By, <laughs> it's not the 17 page one. It's the actual novel by, oh, the author escapes me, but it'll be and in the William show notes. Phelps. William yeah. Yes, the one we just said. When I assume he named it after uh, the 17 page thing. But yes. Um, if you know that they're on your tail, to have this conversation on the phone, you're just so stupid. None of you are smart. You're also very arrogant because you're like, well, surely David Saylor is like on our side. Y'all killed a man next door to he and his grandma. Yeah. And also, you knew him for like three weeks before you did that. By the way, they also borrowed all of the power tools from David and his uncle Todd and didn't return them because they dumped them in various places. So why do you think that this guy who you literally took tools from used them in a horrible, horrific crime, never returned them, possibly fed them something unsavory Mm -hmm. on top of that? And he's your buddy. You're just calling him, talking to him. But it's like Frizzo was like, you think you can get her on the phone? He's like, yeah, she calls me all the time. What do you want to know? Yeah. It's like they're not best friends. Like you've known him for three weeks before you did all this shit. It's that mastermind arrogance. You know, mm-hmm. she's kind of been like this black widow figure and has all these men on the side and underneath her that are kind of doing whatever she wants. And I mean, he was a young guy too, sailor, so he may have been cast into that kind of the same category. Yeah, she would make comments like that. Of, oh, I hope it's a man or I hope that because I guess she thought she could get her claws in and, and manipulate him. But this he was not being manipulated because mm-hmm. he was ratting her to the police. When you're fed human meat at a barbecue. Yeah. I think you don't become friends with that person. Yeah, I don't think you have any loyalty at all. That's you're a like, hard no from me. No, not at all. He was and that's the right move. Tell him where she was at. In Michigan, Frizzo worked with a dive team to search the Caspian Pit, a water-filled mine shaft a few hundred yards from the Cochrane's Upper Peninsula home. They retrieved an empty, rusted 55-gallon barrel tied to a cement block with a clothesline. Neighbors told police the Cochrane's used a similar barrel to burn items behind their house. A pile of ash in the Cochrane's backyard contained a zipper and grommet from a pair of jeans, the same brand of jeans hanging in Chris's closet as well as a reciprocating saw blade similar to one Jason borrowed from a neighbor in September. And the burn barrel 
is pertinent because they think that the neighbor who was complaining, like, what are you guys burning? And they said, oh, it's just brush. And they said it just had this horrible smell. When they later were asking the neighbors, like, what exactly the smell was, they were like, it was really pungent and it could be chemically. They think they burned all that plastic sheeting that they utilized in the basement Mm. in this burn Mm -hmm. barrel, along with any soft items like the Chris's clothes and then just dumped the ashes in their yard. And then dump the barrel right behind their house. And to put metal in there thinking that was going to burn up. Yeah, you did not. No, it did not work. Yeah, and they just dumped the barrel. They, I mean, it was like 11, maybe like 11 yards offshore. Like it was not 11 yards offshore, like 11 feet offshore. It like was not that far out. But I guess if it's late at night, and you're trying to huck a barrel over the edge. You just get it as far as you can get it. Panic and just being an idiot. I mean, there's only so much you're going to do. Well, and also the whole allegation that Jason's back hurt so bad that he couldn't work, he couldn't have sex with Kelly, but that he's able to help her foist a barrel over the edge, help her, like, move all this stuff. uh, Cast some doubts. He has a liver disease that he's so ill that he, you know, that's why she has to sleep with all these men, yet he's able to dismember a person? Yeah, there's yeah, he would claim everything. I have kidney cancer. Oh, my back is out. Oh, it's this. And then yeah, he's able to physically move the, and and move the stuff into the truck to even get it out out there. You get to put a 55-gallon barrel in the back of a truck. That's lifting something and oh, cement yeah. blocks and all that, yeah. And wielding a you know, various tools to mm-hmm. as they said downsize him. I mean, yeah. I've never done it, but I imagine it's hard work. Not one yeah. for someone that's uh, weak and feeble. Yeah, it sounds like he had some help, too. Sinisterhood will be right back. With minimal personnel, Frizzo enlisted help from the FBI, obtaining cell phone data placing Chris at the Cochran's home on October 14, 2014. Another search of their property also revealed a lucky rabbit's foot keychain beneath a stair with the chipped corner. Terry O'Donnell later confirmed that Chris usually kept it on his dining table and only carried the charm with him when he needed good luck or was feeling nervous, according to Where Monsters Hide. And it's almost like they took that keychain and it was hidden under a a stair that was marked. In case you want to go back and look at it later, it was like there was a set of... Yeah, it's like a trophy. It's like, oh, where is it hidden and buried? Oh, it's under the stair with a chipped corner. And, like, they would know that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a, it was very specifically his because it was dyed like a baby blue color. And Terry immediately recognized it, that it was his. God, that's so that's so sad to see something that you, you know, is like a, a symbol of hope and luck mm-hmm. that you know your loved one carried and that they held in their hand and was dear to them. And to see it in such a heinous setting where, you know, like the most awful thing happened. Those are the little details that stick with you. They break your heart. Mm-hmm. And to know he was that cell phone data showed that she had he had texted her from the filling station saying like, oh, kind of like your house or mine. When are we meeting? And she was like, I have a present for you. I know I've been feeling sick and I was out of town and you were busy, but I, I have a present I want to give you. Come over to my house so I can give you a present. And it makes you wonder why he was nervous or wanted good luck and wanted to take that foot mm-hmm. with them. The investigation slowed, but Frizzo never gave up. On February 20th, 2016, around 7 p.m., Kelly Cochran called 911 in Hobart, Indiana. She needed help for Jason, saying, He's breathing barely. He's throwing up. He's sweating. I need an ambulance right away. 
When first responders arrived, they found Jason in an upstairs bedroom. He was seated on the floor up against a wall with vomit on his clothes and the nearby floor. They performed CPR and got his heart started before transporting him to the ambulance. One first responder told ABC's 2020 that he was immediately suspicious of Kelly, saying the scene gave him an uneasy feeling. She seemed to conveniently get in our way a lot. She didn't seem to have the proper reaction to finding her husband in cardiac arrest. Jason was pronounced dead in the emergency room at a nearby hospital later that night. They also mentioned that it was um, very difficult to get him from where he was at because he was kind of up against the wall, like opposite of a door. And they couldn't the way that the staircase was like the stretcher wouldn't fit up there. It was just he was placed in a way that it made it really, really hard for them to perform any kind of life saving measures or get him somewhere. And then she was making it even harder. So it was interesting. That's the location he was found Mm -hmm. and interesting that she was keeping him. Very convenient that he happens to be in the one corner of the room that is impossible for anybody to get to. Mm -hmm. And when you're, you call 911, your husband's in cardiac arrest and then they show up and you're like, can't get out of the way. And you know, it's like, Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Am I in your way? Oh, do you need to get here? Get the fuck out of the way. Anybody that was like wanting him to be his life to be saved would stand back and let them do whatever they needed to do and not be a nuisance. Make it difficult. Even like the cops showed up and they weren't questioning or anything because it's like he's clearly vomiting. He's having some type of overdose or something that police started taking after they got him out of there. An an officer was just taking pictures kind of routine. And she's like, hey, what are you doing? What are those pictures for? Why are you? I'm just going to stand here and watch. And the uh, EMT was like her husband was literally down in the ambulance and she wanted to stand upstairs and watch this guy take photos. Yeah, that was more important. And at which point anyone would ask themselves, well, why is it more important for you to be up here monitoring what I'm doing than down there? What are you trying to hide? Exactly. The next day, Kelly called Jason's online gaming buddy, Walt Ammerman, to tell him about the death. Walt's wife was immediately suspicious of Kelly, since she and Walt knew the Cochrans were under suspicion for murder in Iron River. Walt's wife encouraged him to call the FBI and report Jason's death, so he did. The FBI passed the tip along to Hobart PD, where the case landed on the desk of Sergeant Jeremy Ogden, a master interviewer and well-respected detective in the department with two decades of experience. It's always got to be a woman yeah, to step dude. in and be like, Yeah, she just called to say that he's dead. Yeah, y'all, you need to get on the phone with the FBI. Good for her for immediately being like, this is very sus. Oh, yeah. And Walt goes, my wife never liked Kelly. It's like, yeah, I bet she didn't. And he's like, she always thought she was up to something. And then when she heard this, she's like, honey, no, like the timing, absolutely not. You need to call. Like, And for whatever Jason had done, at least to Walt, they met online playing this Facebook game. And then they got to be friends. And he lived in Michigan, too. Not like super close, but close enough to like hang out, go to dinner together. Like they were buddies. And so you're, you know, especially if you're talking back and forth online, that fosters a sense of intimacy that you've now now feel like you've really lost your friend like fuck yeah, oh, yeah. I call the fbi yeah some online friendships are more intimate and in, in not in a romantic way just the closeness Deeper. that a lot of people develop in online relationships can be more than in-person relationships because you know especially if it's a thing where like a game and you're on all the time and you're talking and chatting i do find it interesting that kelly called him at all 
Right. I wonder if it's just because she didn't want because she knew how often Jason talked to him and played with him that if Jason wasn't logging in, Walt might go, hey, 911, my buddy's missing. Mm. And by the way, his wife was with this other guy. And now that guy's missing. And now my buddy's missing. Maybe look into her. I think she was thinking she was going to get ahead of the story. And she was going to tell Walt, well, you know, Jason did drugs. So that's what happened. He died of a drug overdose. Or make it look even more believable. Like, of course, I'm calling his close friend to tell him of his passing. I'm not mm-hmm. hiding anything. Mm-hmm. Suspicious. Ogden attended Jason Cochran's autopsy. The medical examiner later determined Jason had three times the lethal dose of heroin in his system. He also noted signs of asphyxiation, including pressure marks and collapsed sinus cavities. Obvious petechial hemorrhaging around his neck and eyelids pointed to suffocation. The medical examiner classified Jason's death as a homicide. 16 months after Chris Reagan went missing in Michigan, Jason Cochran was now dead in Indiana. Ogden began working both cases and called Frizzo in Michigan, who gladly shared all her files and notes. Yeah, Ogden's like, I'm standing there and immediately the medical examiner is like, here, here's a sign, here's a sign, here's a sign. He's like, this guy did not just die of a drug overdose. You can physically see where he was suffocated Mm -hmm. and then ironically pull his heart out and his heart, all of the valves in his heart were over 90% occluded and the medical examiner's like, he would have been dead from a heart attack in six months, just FYI, if this hadn't have happened. And as we'll see, I feel like this kind of pulls that string that starts to unravel Kelly's life of like, just couldn't wait. No. You just couldn't wait to shut him up. Well, and I mean, this is in no way in her defense, but you wouldn't know that, you know, no. until well. after the fact. But six months is a long time if you're trying to silence somebody. Right, if you're trying to keep them from cracking. And I, I wonder if, too, a close friendship, a talking every day kind of friendship kind of gets you a little loose-lipped. Event. Like, you might, she might worry, oh, who, what's he telling Walt? You talk to this guy all day, every mm-hmm. day. During her first interview with Ogden, Kelly said she and Jason had taken a nap around 3 or 3.30 p.m. But when Kelly woke up, Jason was blue. She pulled him onto the floor and tried performing life-saving measures, but he wouldn't wake up. That's when she called 911 while hitting him in the face to wake him. When Ogden mentioned Chris Reagan, Kelly became uncooperative and the interview ended. The very yeah, the very first time he talked to her, he said, "Oh, would it be okay for you to come down and do this interview?" And she's like, "About about my husband." And he's like, "Yeah." And she's like, "What do you, what else are you going to ask me about?" And he's like, I knew in my head what I was going to ask her about. And I was like, well, I don't know. What do you mean? And it's like she for as much as she considers herself as such a mastermind, she's such an idiot with the tells. She's got so many tells of like clear, obviously hiding something of like, well, what else are you going to ask me about? Well, now he's definitely going to ask you about it in the interview. You brought it up. She doesn't have a good poker face or a lot of filters. It's kind of like she wears certain emotions on her sleeve that, like you said, are a huge tell. She's not a good liar no 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 but then at this point you're kind of in a rock and a hard place if you're ogden or frizzo because you're like now jason cochran's dead she's the only person that Mm -hmm. we have to work to try to and she just said to the or said to this confidential informant they'll never find the body well Mm -hmm. she's like our only key in march 2016 ogden had an idea to spur kelly to action he called jason's friend walt and asked him to be a part of a ruse walt agreed wanting to do the right thing Ogden drafted a letter, allegedly from Jason, and a script for Walt to use on the phone call. While Hobart PD officers listened in, Walt called Kelly. Can we just say what a 
bold dude that Walt is that he's asked to literally be in this sting. It was like, yeah, he told Ogden, I want to do what I can. I want to do the right thing and help you whatever you want. Let me read that letter. Oh, Jason wouldn't say this. He would sign it quack quack. Make sure to say at the end from quack quack. And he was ready to try to trick her essentially. That was his buddy. His yeah, best friend, can- he's gone now. And if you get a call from this detective that's like, hey, uh, we're pretty sure his wife did it. And then Walt's like, you and my wife both. That's yeah, all right? she's talking about is how mm-hmm. Kelly did it. Then, yeah, I mean, and the, he's also had time to kind of probably process it and talk it over with his wife before he got that mm-hmm. call. I imagine that he was, he wanted to see justice served. He He missed his buddy. Definitely. It's also a bold move and something that you would think only happens in the movies for him to be like, we're going to create a fake letter and act like it's from Jason. But I mean, it's sometimes the most ridiculous plots can work out in your favor. Right. You think like, oh, cops can't do that. First of all, they can lie to you. They can lie all the time. The thing about it, and I'd be interested to see Indiana law, but I know in a lot of states, even where police are allowed to lie to you in the course of an investigation or interrogation, they're not allowed to like falsify documents. But I wonder, since this isn't like the same as saying, oh, here's a DNA test or whatever. But so all that to say, I'm I'm glad Kelly didn't call the bluff and say, well, let me see a copy of it, you know. Well, that's what I was going to say. If it's just like, a reading of the letter and she doesn't see it. Are you really falsifying documents? No, then you're just lying with help mm-hmm. from Walt Amberman, mm-hmm. uh, community hero. <laughs> <laughs> Walt told Kelly about receiving an envelope from Jason just a month and a half before his death. He said it contained a pre-addressed sealed envelope and a note telling Kelly. Uh, the note says, if something were to happen to me, please send this in a few weeks to the Iron River Police Department. It's like I'm supposed to mail this, but I just wanted to tell you. Kelly paused and said, Please don't. Kelly's brother was with her when she received the call. He later told police she began hyperventilating and crying after hanging up the phone. Yeah, at first she's like, I I don't have time for this, Walt. What do you want? And then he tells her and she's like, well, please don't. I mean... Do, do whatever you have to do. Like, I, I get it. He's like, he's my buddy, man. I think I want it. She's like, it's fine. It's, it's fine. Do whatever you have to do. And it's like, even it got her. Acting like that and saying, do whatever you have to do is such an admission of guilt. Like, you <laughs> yes. sound unhinged. You don't sound like someone who is like, what? That's that's strange. Can we meet up so I can see this letter? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. it's, you've come this far with your lie, and now it's mm-hmm. just... I think she was so overwhelmed and it got, you know, so much bigger than her that she just couldn't, she couldn't cope. She cracked yeah, under I the think, pressure. Right. You're like, oh, this small town Iron River Police Department is like, no, it's across state lines. There's other people and Jeremy Ogden does not like to lose. And he's <laughs> like, whatever we have to do. Ogden had been secretly watching Kelly Cochran and noticed that she walked around a park near his house and spent time near a tree. She'd sit on a log beside the tree, possibly crying. In March, around the time of the letter, Ogden decided to carve into the tree. Chris is here. On another nearby branch, he carved. Reagan. He hoped it would throw her off her game enough for her to talk. During her next visit to the tree, Ogden saw Kelly run through the woods, jump in a truck, and speed away. 
For a minute, Ogden thought she was stalking him because he's like, I noticed her truck would drive by like the cross street to my house. And then when he followed her, it was like this thinking tree, I guess she'd go out there by herself, maybe smoke, think, cry, whatever. And then he was like, I got this. I'm going to go leave her a little message. We have upped the gaslighting immensely from just, I got this letter to now making her think that the ghost of the man she killed has come back to the tree. I was thinking maybe it was like kind of their tree, like a spot they went to or something. And now he's what he's communicating with her, like city angel style. I don't know, but it worked, man. Cause he, he said, I watched her walk over there and then she was walking like normal and it clearly caught her eye. And then she got closer and then she took off sprinting Fuck into yeah. the woods. Wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> kicking up dust when I'm leaving because you like that much of a guilty conscience, and you know that letter is on its way to Iron River already. Mm-hmm. Not to mention now you think you're getting a message. Yeah, I'd, I'd squeal. After the letter and tree incidents, Kelly seemed ready to talk. She called and texted Ogden, agreeing to another interview. This time, she made a shocking confession. She lured Chris to the house that night with the promise of sex and a present. While she and Chris were engaged in sex at the top of the back entry stairs, Jason hid at the bottom of the basement stairs. He waited for the couple to finish the deed, then shot Chris in the head. And she pretty explicitly explained that basically right when Chris entered, she initiated intimate contact that eventually led to, for lack of a better term, doggy style sex, where she was kind of on bent over, which would have made her head kind of safely out of the way. Ah, uh, yes, yes. In this uh, door frame. So they're standing in a door frame sort of framed up with Jason hiding at the bottom of the stairs. And then if at that landing where Kelly and Chris are just beyond that, you go upstairs to get in their dining room. So she said she was kind of bent over, which to me indicates she had some knowledge that oh, Jason was yes. down there and was lining up a shot. And that you can engage in anything, much less coitus knowing that the guy who you were having sex with is about to be killed is beyond me that you you would be able to to just be present at all i mean maybe you're not maybe you've disassociated because you know what's coming but to be a part of that at all and to lure him and she knows what she's doing and it's just so eerie and creepy and sad to think what Chris was expecting and what the reality of what was about to happen was. And the, yeah, and the psychology of Jason and Kelly, that Jason in the basement, and she said he made a point to let the act finish. So that there was, they finished having sex. And then that's whenever he decided. And I guess it's in his head, like that makes Chris a bad guy. So therefore, he's a monster that gets to kill monsters, you justify it, whatever you, way you want. Mm-hmm. But it was weird, not weird to me, I think it's telling that Jason wanted to witness that. Yeah. Some kind of weird rule or guideline, you know, he set up Mm -hmm. like Dexter had his. Yes. Like you said, it's just a way to justify your awful deeds. After falling down the stairs with Chris on top of her and hitting her head, Kelly said she was forced to help clean up the scene as Jason downsized him. Kelly explained they dismembered Chris's body before disposing parts in various locations. Ogden decided he and Kelly would take a trip to Iron River. They left Indiana around 1 a.m. and arrived in Iron River six hours later. In the last hour of the ride, Kelly asked for immunity, but Ogden explained it was too late for that 
is she had already confessed to dismembering and disposing of the body. And that's sort of, uh, she had also admitted to luring him there. So, I mean, she admitted to so many criminal acts, but at no point was she put under arrest. So she's voluntarily going to Iron River with Detective or Sergeant Ogden. She's voluntarily giving him all these statements. And he said, as soon as they got in the car to drive to Michigan, that she passed out and like immediately slept like almost the entire way, just waking up at the last part part of it. And he said, to me, that's like, oh, she she really did do it. And that's probably really how it happened, that she lured him there because he said she fell asleep with that. Oh, thank God it's off my chest. You know, mm-hmm. not nervous, Up, you know, like, oh, we're about to get to Iron River. It's like, I'm done. Yeah. And you're in a car with a person that. Uh, I don't know if you feel safe with, but he's a law enforcement. You know, yeah. it might be the first time you felt like you were in a safe location where you can't can relax for a second mm-hmm. and your body just like gives out. Right. It's like, oh, I don't have to be that hold that nerve. anymore. Yeah. yeah. She took Ogden to a place where Chris's remains were supposedly located, but there was nothing there. He then took her to the house and recorded her on video explaining how it allegedly happened repeating the story that she and Chris had sex on the stairs where Jason shot him, then show that they cleaned up around the house and in the basement. So I think that because in that last hour, he's like, nah, we're not doing immunity. But then she was like, well, then I'm not really going to show him where the body is. I think so too. I think she's like, I wanted to keep cards. Like she wanted to hold her cards close to her vest so she could use them later Mm -hmm. to try to get a lesser sentence, lesser lesser charges. But it's interesting that he, when he suggested going to the house and reenacting it, that she agreed to it. And there's a, you know, another officer there to film it. So there's footage of it. And she's just so matter of fact and cold. Very blunt, very emotionless. It's eerie to witness that. And like the, woman who interviewed btk and everything who also said of of kelly like kind of made comparisons between the two like some people you can just talk to about these things and it's just like you're talking about the weather like there's just no emotion behind committing a heinous murder they just speak of it like so casually yeah, that one of the other forensic psychologists said it's a term where you know logically that murder is wrong, but like you don't care and you still do it anyway. And really, the only reason why you cover it up is because you don't want to go to jail, but you you don't really care that you killed anyone. Yeah. You just care about you getting caught. Mm-hmm. That's what she strikes me as. Kelly also mentioned that Jason required her to pull the bullet out of Chris's skull with a pair of forceps. She told her husband she did, but said she secretly left it in. Ogden then drove Kelly back to Indiana. He asked her to come back to the station for a polygraph in two days. She agreed, but at the time of her appointment, she was nowhere to be found. Instead, Ogden got a text that read, The West Coast looks good this time of day. Why would she leave the bullet in? She told Ogden, I don't think she did. She told Ogden, I really wanted Chris's murder to be solved. And I thought if I could leave the bullet in, he would his family would have a chance of his murder to be solved. And it's like, I she just she's got so many different versions of the story. Yeah. I think she really did pull it out because I don't think she wanted to get caught. But I think saying the Again, it's her concern is how she looks. And to be able to say, oh, I easily took the now removed head of a person I claim to love. I claim he changed my life. I claim he was love my life. And I was able to pull a use medical forceps and do this, you know, manipulate a very it's a very intimate part of him. I think she 
didn't want to seem like a psychopath and mm-hmm. said, oh, well, I just pretended because he had a gun to my head. She, she said all the time, Jason had a gun to my head and was constantly forcing me to do everything. And he was so domineering. And it's like, you read the text. No, he wasn't. She was. So I think all the time she's telling, oh, Jason said I had to do X. It might have been that she was telling Jason he mm-hmm. had to do X and is she's reversing the roles to make herself sound much, much better because it's, again, it's only her version. Yeah, I was going to say it's quite convenient that Jason isn't around to give the other half of the story. But that's mm-hmm. an interesting perspective. Was she really the one with the gun telling Jason, you need to pull that bullet out? Because they did find forceps in the house when they went back and searched and there was blood on them. Yeah, so somebody the used item. him to pull it out, you know, and also they never found a bullet. No, there's no bullet. And then the forceps that were found discarded kind of on a kitchen counter at a later search. They said that was the only item in the Cochran's house that was provably Chris Reagan's DNA was on. It seems like, again, if you're going to go to these extremes to cover all this up and you but you you're not smarter, you're not as smart as you think because you leave a key piece of evidence like that just out for anybody to see. Oh, yeah. What a weird text to send someone. You're basically saying, well, I'm skipping town. Yeah. The ball's in your court. It's like this yeah. weird cat and mouse game that nobody asked for. That's what Ogden said. Like, she would talk like she wanted to be this, like, I'm a killer and you have to catch me, detective. And he's like, I'm going to catch you, but let's stop this shit. (laughs) But he's like, most of the time, like, she would just, he would make her feel like she was in charge and, like, she was going to lead him on. But he said there was a moment when she was started pushing him for information right before she confessed that he's like, she's about to just tell me everything. And he said that and he said it. Uh, enough times that I think it's she's heard it obviously and it got under her skin because she did want to craft again how do I look I'm a genius mastermind serial killer that told him I was going to the west coast and he's like let's track your phone (laughs) (laughs) Sinister Hood will be right back with an arrest warrant from Iron River secured Ogden initiated an emergency trace on Kelly's phone and texted her repeatedly so she would turn it on. Within hours, U.S. Marshals located Kelly in Kentucky and arrested her without incident. And that's the thing is that she thought she was playing this cat and mouse game, so she had to keep playing, which means she had to keep turning her phone on, so they pinged it. It was like, there it is. Okay, you just went this far. I mean, they can just sit there and draw a little line between the dots, and not to mention when they... um, called the i think it was one of the dispatchers in indiana happened to be jason cochran's cousin and said well i'll let you know kelly's got a cousin in kentucky that she's keeps talking about going to see so you might keep your eyes on kentucky and that's it was like she thought she was so much smarter and it was like you you flapped your gums you told everybody where you're going to where your ex your husband's cousin just told the cops i don't think she had to keep it up i think she wanted to i think she wanted to be involved in this flirtatious like catch me if you can type of thing where the attraction was definitely one-sided but oh yeah she thinks she has this you know sirens control over men well ogden's a man so she's gonna look at him like this is just another man that i can like dig my claws into and manipulate him bitch you don't know jeremy ogden then 
No, especially, and I think she had thought to herself, oh, Laura Frizzo, she might know, find me out because I can't manipulate a woman as easily as I can manipulate a man. And you can't manipulate this man. He was like, <laughs> nah. And he was exchanging, by the way, everything she said and did, Laura Frizzo knew immediately because they were like exchanging information the whole time. I love it. And I love that they, neither of them like were gatekeepers. They were like, Mm-mm. we just want to solve this. It doesn't matter who gets the W, so to say, like, let's just share information and and get it done. And I also um, think it's a mark of a really good detective that Ogden swallowed his pride and like did take the backseat and like was like, I'm going to let her lead. Cause I, I think for a lot of people, their ego gets in the way of that and they have to be like, right. And show that they're in charge the whole time. But the smarter thing is to you're, you are still very much in charge, but you make it appear like they're the ones in charge because that's, he knows exactly the buttons to push with her. She wants to be in charge. She wants to feel like she's the mastermind. And if you give her, she's going to, you know, what is it? Uh, wait for, what's that saying? Like just wait. Never get in the way of your enemies making a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> just stumbled over the word wait for like 30 seconds before you came in. <laughs> wait. Wait. What is it? If they wait, then but also if they wait, I had no idea what it was. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No worries. But yeah, you're right. I think it's like he was like, if I give her enough, she'll just mess herself mm-hmm. up. Like she was she was too. Also, at this time, he said at some point she would come into interviews with sores all over her face and her arms. So she was using definitely she said, quote, I love pills, any kind of pills. She would fall asleep. They'd be supposed to meet somewhere and he'd show up to meet her. And she was passed out in her truck at one point. And he was like concerned that maybe it was a suicide attempt. And she's just like, no, I'm just really tired. And he's like, I could tell she had obviously been on uppers and then took a bunch of downers. Mm-hmm. And so not to mention, she thinks she's a mastermind, but she's constantly high and is just blurting things out. Yeah. Kelly Cochran was charged in Michigan with homicide, home invasion, disinterment, mutilation, concealing death, lying to police and accessory after the fact to a felony. She was transferred from Kentucky to Indiana, where Ogden was waiting. During her custodial interrogation with Ogden, Kelly changed her story again. Video footage of the interview shows a remorseless Kelly explaining the real reason for the crime, saying of Jason, We had an agreement between us. Normal people, when they get married, they share agreements or vows. The two of us, our agreement was that if one of us cheated on the other, that it was that person's obligation to kill the lover themselves. And if that person did not kill the lover, then the spouse was entitled to just kill the other spouse. It sounds like a complicated pact. It's too complicated. Just if you don't cheat or if you want to cheat, get a divorce or whatever or have an open relationship. But you don't have to bring murder into it. So if you cheat, then whoever was the cuck has it's they have permission to kill the person that cucked them but if they don't then they can kill the spouse no this is what throws me off the two of us the agreement that is one of us cheated so me and you are in a relationship if i cheated on you it was that person's obligation to kill the lover themselves so really kelly should have had to kill chris yes and that's what she kind of, yeah, that's what it should have been. And if you failed to do that, then that's when the cucked spouse then has the entitlement to kill the other spouse, not the lover. So they, even if this was the pact, did not, they, they didn't fulfill it. They fucked it up. It. They didn't yeah. even do the pact right that I no, think they didn't even- 
she made up. I don't even think this is a real thing. It's silly. Yeah, it's something to – I think a lot of the stuff she says was to try to be like, this will make headlines. Yeah, or it kind of absolves her again of like, well, I'm just a victim in this too. Yeah, we made a pact. In this interview, Kelly claimed that when Jason found out about Chris, he told Kelly that because of the pact, Kelly had to kill Chris. Kelly refused because she was in love with Chris, so Jason murdered him instead. However, later in the interview, Kelly admitted to luring Chris to the house that evening, knowing Jason was there. And she changed her story like three or four times. The first time it's like, I lured him knowing he was there. Then later on, she said, well, we were just going to meet up for sex. And I thought Jason had left. I thought he was, you know, going to hang out with somebody. I was so surprised when he was there. <laughs> and then the other one was like, well, yeah, I basically told Jason to go wait in the basement. And then I would get him on the landing. And that's the thing. They locked the front door. She like texts him, come around back. The whole, oh, I had no idea Jason was lying in wait is just bullshit. So it's just silly. And again, it's her arrogance going, well, I'll just make up another story. It's like, he's recording all of this. Like He can check the tapes. Also, if you're on a bunch of drugs and you're trying yeah. to keep up with your lies, it's probably hard. And true, you're going to slip up eventually. Eventually, Kelly agreed to work with a canine officer to find Chris's remains in a wooded area just a few miles from her former home in Iron River. Kelly led investigators to a black plastic garbage bag near a tree, just as she had described. It had been shredded by animals with no remains inside. However, the canine picked up another scent. She took off toward a clearing past the trees and sat beside what Laura Frizzo thought was a large rock. When she approached, Frizzo saw that it was a human skull with damage on one side indicating a gunshot wound with a twenty-two rifle. And Frizzo said she just dropped to her knees and started praying and crying and just said, we found you. We found you. You have something tangible to take back to the family that they can bury. And, you know, even if it is remains for a lot of families, it's a sign of closure because mm -hmm. they're like, okay, we have found you now. We can put you to rest. And now we can start to heal. Yeah, and the really tough part is they have this, well, obviously Kelly's already been arrested, she's charged, they're going to trial. The district attorney said, you know, I'm a big fan of guaranteed wins, so if we could get her to plead guilty, you can take this skull because it's no longer evidence and you can have a burial for it if she pleads guilty. So they first offered her, I want to say like 45 to 60, and she said no, and then, or they maybe or 45 to 65, and she said no, and then they offered her 40 to 60, and she still said no, and the Melissa Powell, the DA, kind of explained to the family, we're going to proceed to trial, but you need to know the laws in Michigan are, if something comes in as a piece of evidence at trial, it has to stay with the file for 75 years. Oh, so yikes. this skull, will, you will never in your lifetime be able to bury this as part of, you know, your close. And the family said, obviously, we want her to go down. We don't care. Mm -hmm. And you get to you choose the jury. They seat the jury. And Kelly says, well, I, I want to plea now. And the, it's a hard decision, right? Because you're right in the courtroom. You're ready to go. And they talk to the family and the family just said, no, we want to proceed to trial. So understanding that you wouldn't get to keep that piece of your family member, but that justice is more important. They decided to proceed. So they allowed the family to make the decision if she could plea or not? 
Well, Melissa said it's important to me, and this is it's a DA by DA. Just uh, you know, it's just how you run your office. And she said this is this was important to me that I had their basically sign off, like their buy into this because uh, either way, like it's a strong case. I believe we're going to be fine at trial, but it is. Uh, we've also expended a ton of resources already. I'm happy to do that for your family member, but. If you want us to keep going, we're going to take it across the finish line. But this is a guaranteed win and you would get to bury, mm-hmm. um, you know, his remains. But at that point, too, once the, the jury is seated and when she's willing to plea, it tells you a little bit about something because yeah. she's feeling nervous. Yeah, she the pressure it's all becomes too real. Well, you see the jurors looking at you maybe a little bit uh, squint eyed like mm-hmm. they don't like you already. And you're like, I'll plead. I'll plead. And it's like too late, man. The trial for the murder of Chris Reagan began February 14, 2017, in Iron County, Michigan. District Attorney Melissa Powell introduced Chris Reagan as the hardworking single father and Air Force veteran. She described Jason and Kelly Cochran as being bonded in blood. Given how their relationship went from cold and disconnected before Chris's murder to romantic and loving immediately afterward. And those, that's also disturbing in the text messages and witness site, like the neighbor, uh, David Taylor's grandmother's like, yeah, they came over Thanksgiving. They were all over each other and like smooching and cuddling and cozy. And she said every time I'd seen him before that, they were kind of like didn't even really like each other. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly in the last two weeks of October, they were just madly in love and obsessed. Yeah, that's that's gross. For sure. Yeah, it's super. Yeah, and I think that's why Melissa Powell want to say this isn't just oh it was a jealous husband. This is a couple of sick individuals who planned, plotted, and enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. Defense attorney Michael Schulke told the jury Kelly was forced into the murder by a heinously abusive husband. Jason shot and dismembered Chris Reagan all alone, while his client had no idea that would happen. He also asked for all judgments to be reserved for deliberations as the jury heard key pieces of evidence. And you have to feel bad for a defense attorney who is told that there's 150 hours of admissible statements from your appointed client. Kind of makes your stomach hurt. Yeah, I mean, I've said before, like, I, in these types of cases, if you're the defense attorney and you just know your client's guilty as shit and they're a horrible person and you're sitting across from them like... I don't really think you deserve anything. I hate that I have to represent you and you still have to go out there and advocate for your client. I don't know how you don't just go, ah, let's just call it a day, shall we? Yeah, it's 150 it. pieces of evidence. Let's just, let's, let's just right now just say, you know what? We're guilty and save everybody a lot of time. I'm sure he tried. Can you imagine as much of a she's real domineering and controlling and know it all thinking, you know, with her degree in psychology with a minor in forensics, you know, she had a lot of opinions. And as an attorney, you're just like, God damn it. The client wants to weigh in with their legal expertise. (laughs) Sure. Kelly, you tell me what you think we should do. So, I mean, I don't envy him for having to represent her because she sucks. And also for I mean, she was so sucks so much that she gave so much to the prosecution that they really really had nothing without her spilling as much as she did and they handed the case to her so yeah i don't i don't envy this guy at all he's also a man and we've seen her track record with men so there's that too yeah she probably thought oh i'm gonna be able to manipulate him in all the footage from the trial he looks honestly just exasperated at her which i don't blame (laughs) him sure he was yeah he's like (sighs) not to mention you've had to look at heinous pictures and read awful things i mean it's very draining Yeah, you know in your gut she did it, too, for sure. 
Testimony lasted two and a half weeks, with the jury hearing from Laura Frizzo, Chris's ex-girlfriend, Terry O'Donnell, and several of Chris's co-workers. David Saylor, the Cochran's neighbor, testified about what he heard and saw the second week of October 2014. Walt Ammerman also testified about his call with Kelly and the fake letter. When Hobart PD Sergeant Jeremy Ogden testified, he described the psychological games Kelly tried to play with him but explained how she eventually blurted out several key incriminating pieces of information repeatedly throughout their interviews. Still, Ogden described Kelly as, The most difficult person I've ever interviewed in my entire career. After Ogden's testimony, the state rested. Yeah, it's interesting to me in the opening statements, too, Michael Schulke's like, oh, this, the state has no evidence that my client was involved. And between Laura Frizzo testified. You that, know that they do. You've yeah. seen it. What are you talking about? 150 pieces. The, well, there's 150 hours alone of her talking on top of there's all the footage, photos, you know, cell phone data. And that was body cam footage of her just being like, yeah, this is where I, these are the forceps. This is where it yes. happened. Here's the keychain. That's wild. When they say, are these the forceps? And on body cam footage, Kelly goes, yep. And she says it so doesn't give a fuck. And Mm -hmm. so coldly is like, yep, that's it. That's what I use. So even if she thought she was going to have some demeanor in the courtroom, it's there's footage that they've already seen. So it's almost like sometimes as an attorney, you can't make such a gross understatement because the jury's like, well, you sound like an idiot. But then again, you have you try to be a zealous advocate for your client. I don't know if I would have said that, but. We make the choices we make. It's a it's a hard thing, I imagine, when you're like, I don't think this person should be walking around, but this is the life I chose. Right. But I don't want to give them uh, an appealable window of ineffective assistance of counsel, so I'll try my best. Mm-hmm. The defense only called one witness for its case in chief, Kelly. She testified for two full days about the abuse she allegedly suffered at Jason's hand. However, her demeanor was flat and emotionless. She explained how she engaged in sex with Chris on the stairs before Jason shot him, though she had no idea it was coming. She later testified that she had been forced to dismember Chris at gunpoint, but never flinched when describing more gruesome details. And yeah, the flat affectation doesn't play well for the jury. And Terry O'Donnell alleges that while she was testifying, Kelly smiled at her kind mm. of creepily and that she had this something happened to Kelly's eyebrows, which not not throwing shade on her appearance, but because her eyebrows were so thin, it made her uh, and she's quite pale and she has these dark eyes. It made her eyes look sharkish and devilish. And Terry O'Donnell's like, I felt like I stared into the face of the devil. And as soon as I got off the stand, I got in my car and drove and I don't even know where I ended because I just had to get far away from that woman and they said just her looking at the jury and when she would look at the d- the judge or the prosecutor stuff and just had this kind of evil smile and it's like well you're gonna go to jail man mm-hmm. if you keep do you know you can either try to really defend yourself or sit there and be this like evil serial killer with this role that you're playing and she chose the second one <laughs> and she didn't have to testify correct no. You don't have to. Absolutely, you don't have to. But I think that was probably a... She probably wanted to. And I bet Mm -hmm. Shulky was probably like, I got nothing else but for her to explain, (laughs) hey, it was all Jason. He was this jealous husband. Well... Right before she gets on the stand, though, you've just seen like six, five full days of 
it's at least two full days from Frizzo and two full days from Ogden being like, she said this, then she said this. This was, that's how we knew she was lying. Here's another lie. Here's another lie. Here's another contradiction. So the jury just got, which is very strategic on Melissa Powell's part, two, four full days almost of just being told she's a liar. She's a liar. She's a liar. And then she gets called to the stand. Oh, but, you know, Miss Cochran, are you going to tell us the truth today? Oh, yes, absolutely. I will. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, sure. So you're not lying now, but you right. were lying then. Sinisterhood, we'll be right back. On cross-examination, Kelly was asked directly, Where is the rest of Chris Reagan? She replied, I don't know. During closing arguments, Kelly's attorney emphasized repeatedly that his client was an admitted and repeated liar. He implored the jury not to believe anything she said, including any version of the events of October 14, 2014. Her attorney was unsuccessful in swaying the jury, and Kelly was convicted on all counts. In May of 2017, she was sentenced to mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole. Well, that is quite a defense when all you can do is get them to say, y'all know my client is a liar, so don't believe anything she says. Right? Don't. Ignore all of that horrible stuff she said and also her version of the events and the fact. So, yeah, I'm not lying now. I was lying then. Okay, whatever. You just, like I said. You're also like, yeah, I know my client's a huge piece of shit and she's a pathological liar. And that's, it is what it is, you know, but this is the best I got. If she's a liar, then she's always lying. So don't believe her now either. It's it's so weak, but it's just grasping at the few straws he had. This was to say, you can only cook with the ingredients you have, and that's he had some very bad ingredients, mm-hmm. and he tried. On April 18th, 2018, Kelly pleaded guilty to the murder of Jason Cochran by heroin overdose and strangulation in exchange for the state of Indiana not seeking the death penalty or adding more charges. The judge sentenced her to 65 years in prison to be served consecutive with her life sentence in Michigan. Several appeals of her Michigan conviction proved unsuccessful. She is currently serving her life sentence without the possibility of parole at the Huron Valley Correctional Facility for Women in Michigan. She is 41 years old. And she had kind of said before pleading to Jason Cochran's murder, oh, my, I know my conviction in Michigan is going to get thrown out of appeal. I'm counting on it. I'm counting on it getting thrown out. No, it was not. No, it didn't. No. And now it's there forever. And 41 that's pretty young to be staring down the rest of your life in a correctional facility. Yeah, and there's not really, and this is a testament to the excellent work by District Attorney Melissa Powell, because the appellate points that she was trying to pull was, oh, well, they let in information that I claimed I was a serial killer and I had killed other people. They let in information that I had these trophies of these other people and they let in information that I made shanks out of my eyeglasses in jail and all of that convinced the jury that I was a bad person and I would not have been convicted but for that. And the tone of the Court of Appeals of Michigan opinion was like, "Mm, really? You think you wouldn't? I mean, I can't. There was real legal language used, but the tone was so much like, hmm, well, I'm about to list off all of the other evidence that is really why you got convicted. And here are the statements from the prosecutor that made these things admissible. So Melissa Powell didn't... 
put forth any of that evidence to say, I am putting forth Kelly's statements. By the way, they were her own statements, which generally makes them admissible. But I'm putting forth Kelly's statements saying she's a serial killer to show you she's playing this cat and mouse game. She's a liar. She's making stuff up. So she wasn't putting it forth like you should convict her because she's a serial killer. They were like, here's more evidence that she's a liar. Here's where she's saying she's a serial killer. So that's the Court of Appeals was like, I clearly see that. You obviously should have seen that before you wrote this petition. Absolutely, your conviction stands. And the Supreme Court of Michigan goes, there's just nothing here for us to look at. Sorry, you're staying in. Like, they did it right. The person that wrote that sat down, cracked their knuckles, and was like, are you ready for some receipts? Made a cup of tea and just settled in for the night. We call that in the legal profession a bench slap. (laughs) No, y'all don't. Yes, we do. Be like, that's a little bench slap. Whereas, like, this is ridiculous. You brought this to me. <clears throat> Let me write you a little opinion. Oh, and then man. the opinion's like, are you serious now? That's a bench slap. Damn. Mm-hmm. Kelly claimed she and Jason killed multiple other people with victims in Michigan, Indiana, Tennessee, and Minnesota. Her brother Colton came forward, telling Ogden that Kelly claimed to have killed at least nine victims. In May 2018, as Kelly was being sentenced for Jason's murder, Sergeant Ogden told ABC7 News he was looking into the claims of other victims, saying, I have two cases that I've asked her about. I have nothing else that I can provide on those situations, but you never know. One day. So she wants to say, I'm not a serial killer, but we have nine people in all these other states that we've also killed. Yeah. Yeah, that's what she keeps claiming. And and the brother said, yeah, she told me like it wasn't. Oh, she made a reference to maybe Chris wasn't the first. He's like, no, she told us there were nine other victims that she killed. And there was some implication that the 14 butterfly tattoos that Kelly had on her body, each butterfly was for each different victim because she had visited the body farm in Tennessee when she was at Purdue and she noted how the decomposing bodies didn't really have flies or maggots or gnats. She's like, there were so many butterflies and she kind of made that her thing and Laura Frizzo goes, which was such a burn, she's like, her whole house had all this weird butterfly stuff in it. (laughs) But it did, I mean, she had this like weird obsession with butterflies that traced back to the body farm and it's Ogden goes, it makes me sad that you studied forensics not for the great good of mankind but that you can more easily get away with horrible stuff Mm -hmm. and he said i study this and i do this to try to help people and it makes me sad and sick that you spend all this time learning it to try to hurt people and yeah so that's what she says oh it's the butterflies are each there's a trophy box there's a trinket box in the house which was brought up at trial but laura frizz was like we looked into it we didn't find any trinkets or trophies in the house except chris regan's um rabbit's foot but terry o'donnell's like in her opinion, she's like, being in her presence, she was so evil. And what they did to Chris was so evil. There's just no way in my mind it was their first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that if for that to be the first time you killed someone, it seemed like um, they were pretty comfortable with it, that that yeah. wasn't the, the first time. I had no idea about the butterflies. That's I knew about the butterflies on her body, the tattoos symbolizing. I mean, I did not know that at a body farm butterflies are 
seen a lot as opposed to other bugs. How interesting. Yeah. Well, she said she saw a lot of them. There was one one weird thing is that a very specific brand of ammunition was found in the Cochran's Michigan home. And it was a weird off brand of, I think, a 38 bullet that it's just really hard to find. And it's just unusual. And it just so happened that a guy one town over from Hobart, Indiana, was killed in a shooting and the bullet was that brand of ammunition. And so that was one connection that Ogden and Frizzo are like, could it be? Could it? But, you know, they go down. I appreciate them because they aren't like, we have to prove that Kelly and Jason did it. It's like, we can look into that crime and see if they did it. Not, we're going to shoehorn this in mm-hmm. here and like make her into some serial killer if she's not one. Those who love Chris Reagan still feel the sting of his absence. Terry told the Chicago Tribune. Right now, he should be in North Carolina with his son kayaking in the rivers and the mountains and hiking and biking and doing the things that he loved. She wants Chris to be remembered. As someone happy and loving and kind, he had so much to offer and Kelly took it all away. Chris Reagan Jr. credits Chief Laura Frizzo and her determination with bringing his dad home, saying, If it wasn't for Laura Frizzo, Kelly would have gotten away with it. So what do we think? Not making it about Laura Frizzo or Jeremy Ogden. I will say, though, it is interesting that both of them suffered politically and professionally by digging in and trying to solve this case. And I think Kelly Cochran showed that she was willing to kill again. Obviously, she was a party, very willing participant, I think probably planner. I think she did kill again. Yeah, I think they killed that guy after when they were in Indiana. Yeah, I think he killed they killed him maybe before they even went to Michigan. But even just her being willing to kill Jason Cochran, like she needed to be stopped. And Laura Frizzo's gut and Cindy Barrett's gut and Melissa Powell, who was the DA that backed Laura Frizzo this whole time in Iron River, all of their guts were telling them. And then the evidence was telling them. Meanwhile, the Michigan State Police really bailed on Laura Frizzo and Mm -hmm. really pushed first the Terry O'Donnell narrative, which was when that was clearly stupid and wasn't going to work. Then we're like, well, he wanted to disappear. He obviously it's a suicide. He obviously just walked in the woods. He obviously just wanted to disappear. And she's like, did you go in his his apartment because he was really fixing to move to North Carolina and his son's like there's no way so it's frustrating to see that it probably Jason Cochran could have also been arrested had more investigation been done at the call for uh, and meanwhile Laura Frizzo was kind of batting around this sex discrimination issue at work with the city manager so it's just like get out of the person's way and let her solve this Mm -hmm. and I think had that have happened earlier this family would have been able to get closure earlier but to that point like we said the portion of Chris that was found before trial his skull is now 75 years locked up in Michigan but then in fall of 2017 when Frizzo was working with Investigation Discovery to film Dead North and they had Gila the canine dog out there they were able to find additional remains that now Chris's family can have more closure and bury him and so then it's still it's not like Frizzo said well the case is closed close the folder she was willing to walk through and and share Chris's story and I do think she feels this responsibility as the person who was able to bring justice to him to make sure that the focus stays on him the narrative stays on him and I think that's why I dislike a lot of Kelly Cochran like the devil woman of Michigan Kelly Cochran is this evil mastermind serial killer when you really you go through the case and you go 
it's really sad that she was a really good manipulator and a sick person, but I don't think she's worthy of any, well, I don't think any serial killer is worthy of any like moniker or this and they're so, but especially not her because at the end of the day, I think she was not some magical mastermind. I think she manipulated a, a good guy who was just, you know, looking for a connection and was just like, ah, you know, it's my coworker. It's like a low stakes thing mm-hmm. and just could have had no idea what he was really being lured into. But I, I just, it makes me irritated how on the front end it could have been so much more efficient except for so many people denying a woman who was like, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think uh, Jason could have been arrested instead of uh, killed by his wife, which the the biggest problem with that is that he wasn't around to give the other side of the story. So everyone's left with like, we think this is how it happened and we're piecing this together. But you have like, you know, the lies that Kelly is telling. Yeah, closure sooner. And also just... Um, I think especially like small town police departments, we've seen so many times that when something that's, you know, kind of bigger than what they're used to handling happens, they're so quick to find an answer and just like close it down that whatever is the simplest explanation, like, okay, yeah, well, I mean, it's probably the girl, the ex-girlfriend, she's mad he's moving. Like that seems right without really like looking into the evidence or anything behind it. It, it's that immediate patriarchal jump to, well, the the crazy ex-girlfriend probably did it. You know, it's just like, yeah. no, she was the one that, in fact, if if it were not for Terry O'Donnell, he would have never been found. They probably would have gotten away with it. Right. Or, yeah, they could have gotten away. And Kelly had, when they killed Chris, she stole Kelly. She stole Chris's keys from him. So she had access to the apartment. She did go back to his apartment mm-hmm. and stole his camera. And if... It weren't for Terry O'Donnell when she did saying something when she did. They could have gone out and cleaned more stuff up or messed, you know, gone to his apartment and cleaned more stuff out or made it look whatever, left a suicide note, anything like that to continue to manipulate the situation as they were. So you're right. Yeah, it's like this jump to this conclusion of like, oh, well, obviously it was the girlfriend. And it's like, well, did you look at anything? Yeah. And then when it's like, no, it's not her. Oh, well, he probably just wanted to kill himself then. Also not that, like you guys are going to have to do a little bit of work. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. And thank goodness that Laura Frizzo did. And I think, and I think it's a great testament to the type of inve- investigator she is that she didn't just like solve it and let it go. I mean, she was emotionally invested in this case. How could you not be talking to Terry and Chris Reagan Jr. and everybody, you know, and wanting to find this. And also we didn't mention, but her and Ogden, fall in love and get married so i mean yes. with also without this case like they wouldn't have connected but because they were both so invested in sharing so many hours trying to solve this case they form a connection through it so i'm glad that eventually whatever semblance of justice could be served was however it shouldn't have taken that long if people were Listening to, like you said, a woman who is very capable and accredited, you know, and her boss not saying like, oh, well, it's just a woman. She's probably just emotional. No, 
And because of that opinion, you now, another person's dead, maybe more, and you have prevented, like, the family from closure and having, like, even more remains to bury. Exactly. And just getting in the way for nothing more than just, you know, preconceived notions. Just being a dickhead. Being a dickhead. Yeah, for sure. In your head. But yeah, when you come across somebody like Kelly Cochran, who, like I said, I don't think she's some great mastermind. I don't think she's she's like trash. She's the devil woman of Michigan. Yeah, she's trash. And the really sad part, and I I think it was Ogden who said this in Where Monsters Hide, which, by the way, if anybody wants more information on this, I'm not talking about Jason Cochran's self-written spiral notebook story, but M. William Phelps, um, where Monsters Hide book is an excellent and very thorough look into this. And he worked closely with both Frizzo and Ogden. But I think it was Ogden who said, and it's quoted in that book going like, it's such a shame because Kelly wasn't stupid. Like she went to Purdue, she studied this. And he's like, it's just sad to see kind of this like wasted potential Mm -hmm. and used on something so pathetic. But I don't think she had a shot because she kind of told her mom that she had always felt homicidal. She told Ogden she had weird homicidal feelings. And she would, again, try to tell these stories after Jason was dead about Jason and oh he would drown these mice or he would do these kind of serial killer things and you know you wonder was that stuff she did and Mm -hmm. she again is just pinning it on him because Catherine Ramsland who analyzed some of Kelly's writings for the Chicago Tribune yeah said she's kind of like this narcissist who wants to preserve you know self-preservation narcissist and so she it's not like she was ever going to have feelings or be you know a good kind person she was a psychopath yeah she's a psychopath she can't feel that she knows it's wrong and doesn't want to look bad but yeah she don't care Sinisterhood will be right back. I think her and Jason were doing a lot of them together. And it was this sick relationship where, you know, when that happened, they got very, you know, happy, intimate with each other. Obviously, mm-hmm. as the, the neighbors said, it was like this weird um, sexual thing that's, I, like like his 17-page novel said, you know, evil can smell evil. Monsters recognize other monsters, and perhaps that's what drew them together and ultimately uh, ended both their lives just in different ways. Right. That's what Melissa Powell said. They were bonded in blood. Yeah, the text in like two, three days after the killing of Kelly being like, fuck me, I'm going to come home and I want you to fuck me. And just when before that, Jason was like, please come home. Mm -hmm. You haven't been home in so long. I missed you. The I think it was she clearly gave him praise, Jason praise and attention when he committed this murder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they did it together. It makes you. I won't say even wonder. It makes me assume it was not the first time and that this was a cycle that they would do. And that is why they left Indiana is to go to Michigan on a whim. They moved to the UP freezing cold in the middle of the winter. Like, why do you do Mm -hmm. that? All of a sudden pick up and move from Indiana. And she's like, well, it was beautiful. I've always wanted to live there. They're like, you have no family, no friends, no connections. Zero degrees. It's, yeah, no degrees. You have nothing. It's freezing. And they ran up there. And I'm glad and I hope it continues that somebody's looking into the perhaps Mm -hmm. shooting death of or disappearances of single men or men that had any kind of relationship with her because um, her brother alleged that she met some people online and and, uh, she mentioned she had, quote, friends in Minnesota and friends in Tennessee. So look into it at the very least. Sadly, I do not think Chris was their first victim. And... I also think that she was probably the 
between her and Jason, the leader of the two. Oh, certainly. maybe it was a thing where she, um, you know, was more intimate with Jason or, you know, found him or at least told him she found him sexier when he did these things because, mm-hmm. you know, it was a man a and man. he was fighting, you know, whatever sick fantasy she has. So that might be like when the cops show up and he's like, she's not here because he doesn't know what to say. He knows he's going to get an earful as soon as that door closes because she's the one in charge. And then she takes over and she, I think she, I wouldn't call her a mastermind, but she was definitely, I think, driving yeah yeah, the driving force behind it all and that's what all the text messages revealed too is that her that's why i think shulky's opening statement and his uh, examination of her his direct examination of her fell so flat and were so weak because you cannot have a person sitting on the stand saying it would be like it would be one thing if it was an absence of messages between the two and she's a victim saying i was in a domestic violence situation but it was testimony from family members that lived in the house with them like you know whenever they lived with her parents or his parents that he was not violent he was not yelling he didn't yell at people that was not really his personality and then just all of their communications with each other and even to where eric erickson the other co-worker she was having a relationship with said oh yeah she told me her husband was really controlling and abusive and i always just thought that was weird because she like was never at home and just did whatever she wanted whenever she wanted mm-hmm. and then if you read the text messages jason was like i miss you please I miss you and she's like either ignores him or is like I'll be back when I'm back yeah so you s- just see in the text like in their day-to-day life she was driving stuff there's no way all of a sudden the, fl- the switch gets flipped and she's the mastermind telling him to go around now I'm sure you don't he was a willing participant and he liked it too yeah. given his notebook and stuff but I think her going oh he was so abusive and it didn't work it just none of the evidence was there and also I think she's a liar so yeah I don't think um she would have had the time to do the things she was doing if he was as controlling as she claimed he was because yeah. she wouldn't have been able to leave the house. Yeah, much less have two full other relationships. Right, exactly. That's, uh, I mean, that's more than a day's worth of shit you got to be out doing, so. No, for sure. But yeah, you're like you said, Ogden and Frizzo finding each other in this sea of chaos. And, you know, it's sad because Terry O'Donnell very much still loves Chris. Mm-hmm. She calls him Christopher and she speaks on him with such love and kindness. And she says on the anniversary, um, you know, of his disappear of his murder, she'll go and walk out in the UP, walk in the woods. They're hiking spots that they used to go to and look at the beautiful views he used to take pictures of because you know, all, she said, I feel like he's still out here and given the fact that they were not re- able to recover anything except for the top of the skull and then later his jawbone you know she she's means that i'm sure both spiritually but also literally so that kind of is his final resting place is this wilderness of the up so she, it seems like and i hope she finds you know peace and beauty and connection in that area even though it's from this really grim place and this yeah. is such a sad thing to be like you know we could have patched it up what could have been it's just that dashed hope that's what i was gonna say is what a remarkable person and it struck me throughout the documentary and just hearing her speak about him after that even though she's very aware of how he was murdered and the act that was happening and everything and the relationship he was carrying on she didn't let that get in the way of wanting to do the right thing and never even really there was no like judgment in Mm -mm. when she speaks of him not like well if he wasn't sleeping with that woman and you know that i told him Mm -hmm. not to it was like this is what happened he is a victim he's not to blame i'm not Mm going to judge him for it and she 
still like, even now, like knowing that how he was murdered and just like picturing that in your mind, she's like, I'm still going to go out and honor his memory. And I say that because she was still in love with him. She wanted him back, you know? And so when you, it's one to have like the love of your life murdered, awful to have him murdered when you know, he's like having sex with another woman and just like that whole visual and everything incomprehensible. And I think it's, um, she's a very big person to be able to compartmentalize those two things. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a testament to your love. You know, you like you love someone even when you're apart or even when things aren't going the best at the time. She did say the one thing, she, it's almost like you can tell, obviously, she has a ton of unfinished business with them and curiosity. But she said, whenever I came face to face with her in the courtroom, uh, she said, my blood ran cold. You know, I felt like I was looking in the face of the devil. And I just kept asking myself, what what did Christopher see in her? Mm-hmm. And that must, that must just eat at you and, and worry you. But at the end of the day... You, like you said, he can't come back in this form, but I'm sure in whatever ways that you can feel connected, whether that's anytime someone asks you, you know, hey, we're making a ABC 2020 about it. Would you like to be on camera agreeing to participate, knowing I am now one of the only remaining stewards of the legacy of Chris Reagan? I take that seriously and I love him and I will love him until I die. And so therefore I want to be I'm responsible for it. And I'm yeah. glad to tell his story, even if it hurts me, even if it breaks my heart every time I do it. That's wow. Beautiful. Yeah. True love. Very, we should all be so loved. Yeah. It's very admirable. And um, I hope that that gives his his son, his sons, he has two, but one was only really discussed. I think the other one is younger. Some kind of comfort that, you know, there are others out there that still love and care about their dad and um, still honor him on yeah. the anniversary and everything. He's remembered. Well, and luckily... Um, his horrible uh, perpetrator is now behind bars and isn't going to get out in her lifetime. I think that's no, where and, she dies. And she'll give interviews and she comes off again. I think she thinks she's painting this picture of herself and in whatever interview anybody does with her, you're just like liar, liar, liar. Mm-hmm. You're full of shit, liar. We know it doesn't matter what you say. So to that extent, it's like, I don't really give a shit what Kelly Cochran says. Cause she's a narcissistic psychopath who only wants to make herself look good. And to that extent, We would rather just remember the life of Chris Reagan Mm -hmm. and the people that loved him and let her rot. To have a seasoned detective say, in my decades-long career, I've never interviewed somebody as difficult as her, that is a feather in your cap. Because he's interviewed hundreds, thousands of people. And for you to be at the top of the list of the most difficult, you got to be a real pain in the ass. What also makes me curious is that if in his entire career, she's the most difficult and yet he still not only got a full confession and a location of the remains and a hundred and fifty hours or a hundred and some odd hours of interview footage, then how much evidence does he get from the easy targets? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They just walk in. They're like, I did it. He didn't have to open his mouth. (laughs) Shit, it's Ogden. I'm just going to tell him everything, whatever. But yeah, you're right. And that's the other kind of bright spot is that Laura Frizzo was working all the time. Jeremy Ogden was working all the time. And through this case, working together, they both said it was almost like they were, you know, he was reading my mind. She was reading my mind. We were so on the same page. So the fact that the two of them, I think, could find love, find each other. And they both are willing participants in, you know, 2020 or whatever. And again, just 
being stewards of Chris Reagan's story mm-hmm. and knowing how important that was to his family that he's he's remembered for who he was and uh, Kelly, Kelly does not get the spotlight, I guess. For sure. Always look for the helpers. That's right. As we like to say. For sure. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to say what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content, like this month's mini-sode about the recent tragedy behind the dress that had everyone on the internet asking, is it gold and white or blue and black? For recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show and make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. You can also head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out Sinisterhood merch like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos. And while you're there, don't forget stickers to fancy up your water bottle or your folder or binder or whatever as you're going into this back-to-school season. Laptops? Laptop stickers. I forgot laptops. Number one probably place for stickers <laughs> is laptops. But go to Sinisterhood.com and click shop and get your laptop sticker. No, those trapper keepers are going to get some stickers on them. Don't you shy away from your initial gut statement. I have turned to dust because I was like, all the kids with their trapper keepers, they I, use Chromebooks. They're Chromebooks, ma'am. Yeah, I love trapper keeper. I thought <laughs> like that was the most top tier elite back to school item like the rich the velcro coming off and it was like the whole big flap of velcro and then Mm-mm. do they still make them yeah they do i'm getting so i go to schools i go to school supply shopping for myself every year i use i use um spiral notebooks for all my sinisterhood stuff we need to get some sinisterhood notebooks i, I just get a them. trapper keeper and keep my stuff in it let's do a sinisterhood trapper keeper composition books notebooks we're on it i'll figure it out i bet we can do it somehow can can we go to target later and get a trapper keeper yeah for sure let's go i really want a trapper keeper let's go I'm back like, to school shopping i it's got so i got a a fire's been lit inside of me <laughs> i won't rest until i have a trapper keeper <laughs> but i do i use spirals like for like our work stuff like for sinister head oh, stuff that's what just, I, yeah, I use um like i don't i don't use spirals as much as like journals journal notebooks. oh yeah i have like full eight and a half by 11 spirals so i like to get some with um, little designs on them so yeah let's go i, I love mean, fun pens and pencils and all that kind of stuff markers i've talked myself into i we're, we'll figure it out i want some sinisterhood a stationary for myself Ooh. and if we can make it available widely we'll figure that out too but we'll work on that in the meantime check out what we do have at sinisterhood.com <laughs> and click shop on the top banner from the desk of from the desk of mm-hmm. oh i'm gonna get some of those made watch yourselves from the studio of <gasps> stop it that's so much of a better idea would like anyways we'll talk about it off here <laughs> and uh I'll be posting pictures of my trapper keeper soon because I'm assuming they still have themes and stuff when I'm going to find a cool one. They have to. I hope so. I really hope that this is, they're like, no, grandma, we don't carry this anymore. Get out of here, you old. We may have to go to Office Depot slash Max, which we can make two stops. It's fine. That's true. We'll okay. do it. All right. Well, thank you for indulging all of us in that. We'll keep you posted on our Trapper <laughs> Keepers. Uh, in the meantime, while you are looking at what we do have on our website, you can also review the show while you're there, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description of shows for more fun, like topic-based playlists. And when we have live shows, we'll post links to those there as well. That's right. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Well, let's try that again. <laughs> 
We don't. I mean, we have Twitter. You can follow us. Technically, it's called X now. It's a whole deal. It Please changed the. It changed my app on my phone, and now I was like, "What is this X? I don't even have this." Then I was like, "Oh, this is Twitter now." It looks like a logo for like a sus cheating on your spouse porno app. Like I don't like mm-hmm. it. I don't like to click it, and then when you get in there, it's a cesspool. Anyway, whatever. Follow us. I'm keeping <laughs> the handle because I don't want anybody else to take it. But I really don't tweet that much. I'm sorry. But follow us on Instagram at Sinisterhood Pod. You can also like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Check us out on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. And check us out on Cameo.com. Search Sinisterhood. Cameo is a place for you to order custom video shoutouts. We can say Happy Birthday. I love you. Please come back. Happy. <laughs> anniversary i quit He's whatever back. <laughs> you never know uh we uh, can deliver that custom video message so uh just tell us what you want us to say and we would love to it's one of our favorite things to do cameo.com and search sinisterhood christy where are you at online i well first i i really hope we do get something that is like we're having to talk to someone about something if you need us to tell your kid about the birds and the bees or like something <laughs> That's really, I want something a little more serious. All of them are, are fun. Like, ha- I love telling people happy birthday. But <laughs> don't if, ask for this. If I get to tell don't. someone, like, listen, if you don't put a ring on it, then she's going to leave you. Then yeah. I was born for that. Yeah, you um, you are asking for like, hey, my roommate won't do her dishes, so I need you to send a message. And we're like, hey, it's Christy and Heather from Sinisterhood. And Jen, your roommate, Andrea, wanted to say, clean your fucking dishes, okay? It's not funny anymore. She's fucking over it, and she's not going to renew the lease. So this is your last chance. Anyway, keep it creepy. <laughs> is that what you want? Yeah, obviously, yes. I don't know. <laughs> Stop it. We're going to get some bad shit like, hey, Tyler, it's your parents. You can't go in the bedroom and lock the door, okay? We know you're 18, but you're still a member of this household. And it's loud, Tyler. And I'm still doing your your laundry. And I can't take it anymore. These socks... I don't know. You could just, they're, they break right in half. If you slap it on the table, it breaks right in half. That's how hard these socks are. You gotta knock it off. Keep it creepy. <laughs> I'm so, looking forward to what we get. Yeah, great. Cameo.com search Sinisterhood. And well, technically, I think we have to say anything you put in that box. So, whatever. We'll see. Well, I'm excited. Where are you at online? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. I don't X or tweet. What do they even call it now if they don't call That's it tweeting? That's the dumb thing. You can't be like, oh, I did an X thread. That sounds stupid and weird. What do you it's say? Me. I think people are still saying tweet. I don't go there. It scares me now. It's like, <laughs> it's more boomer than Facebook even. Ooh, I can't. It's rough. Yikes. It's like sick out there. Anyway, <laughs> not on Twitter anymore, but check me out everywhere at Heather versus the world. <laughs> As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Kylie Nicole Goss. Soundbox 16. Lauren Delagardle. Fern Music. Hannah Hill. Nicole. Zan. Emily. Bree Majowski. M.S. Yarborough. Beth Speak. Ashley Ziegler. Amanda M. Ellis. Caitlin Christianer Donkers. Bridget Tidor. Claire Reeves. 
Whitney Caterbeck. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We literally couldn't do this without you. And we love each and every one of you so much. We hope we pronounce your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Cine.